Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up and let's get started on today's podcast. Welcome to today's podcast with our expert guest, Chloe McLeod. It is kindly brought to you by Future Farm Co, who aim to deliver plant-based foods to Australia and New Zealand, bringing the world's best brands of plant-based foods to your local store. You can find them on Instagram at Future Farm ANZ and on Facebook at Future Farm Co. Now, today's special guest, Chloe, is an expert in gut health, food intolerances, and sports nutrition. As an advanced sports dietitian and an accredited practicing dietitian, Chloe works with the Parramatta Eels National Rugby League squad and co-owns nutrition consultancy Health and Performance Collective. With over 10 years' experience in the industry, Chloe's expert knowledge provides sought-after ability to help her clients be their healthiest selves. With a Bachelor of Nutrition and Dietetics at Flinders University and a Master's of Public Health at the University of Sydney, Chloe is passionate about helping individuals make positive changes to their lifestyle. Chloe has created a world-class online course, the FODMAP Challenge, helping individuals identify gut intolerance symptoms. I can't wait for you guys to hear both of these podcasts with Chloe. In the first one, we will talk about FODMAPs, sensitive tummies, prebiotics, and fueling your gut for performance. And in the second podcast with Chloe, we will discuss runner's gut and other gut-related exercise issues, along with strategies for stitches and cramping. You can find Chloe on social media at Chloe underscore McLeod underscore dietitian or at health underscore performance underscore collective. Now let's jump into today's podcast with Chloe. Welcome, Chloe, to the podcast. I'm very excited to have you on today to talk all things sensitive tummies and gut health and performance. Thank you so much for having me, Leanne. I'm very excited to be here. Now, for our listeners at home, Chloe, can you give us a little bit um, a background, I guess, in terms of your journey to becoming a sports dietitian? Why did you choose nutrition and then why did you become a sports dietitian? Yeah, for sure. So um, I have always been interested in food. I have had food intolerances my entire life. I had eczema really, really badly when I was a kid. And um, part of that was having food sensitivities. So I guess that's always made me interested in food. And then when I was trying to work out what I wanted to study when I was at university um, or to go into university, my mum actually suggested, why don't you do nutrition and dietetics? And I was like, oh, yeah. Sounds like a good idea. It's about food and I like helping people. I like talking to people. And because it ticked a lot of the boxes, um, that was the direction that I went in. Um, I've always also um, played a lot of sport throughout my life as well. So um, always been interested in sport and that sort of was a bit of a natural progression. Um, I think also for a lot of dietitians working in private practice, having the sports dietetics qualification is really helpful as well because whether you're working with people who are just everyday um, active type people or up to elite level activity, um, having that extra qualification and knowledge can really help you to be able to work with people more effectively. And so I guess the the food intolerance and the sports side of things are my two key areas of interest um, because of what I've already explained. And um, yeah, I think I've, I feel really lucky that I'm able to work in both those spaces and they, they do tend to 
run across each other really nicely a lot of the time as well. Definitely. Yeah. Such rewarding um, spaces to work in. Now with your own, I guess, background in intolerances, we have very similar stories. FYI, like I suffered yeah. <laughs> eczema and that sort of thing as a kid. Like I remember my mum would always put me in like, I guess sun safety is great, but like long sleeve shirts and cover me in um, always because I used to get like eczema between um, like my, like these joints as well. And like under my knees and that sort of thing as a kid as well. And then like yeah. sun exposure used to make it worse as well. So that sort of sparked my interest in nutrition as well from a really young age, just always being like, I don't even know if it's lactose or dairy or what is it? What am I reacting to? So it is such a rewarding sort of space to work in, but it's also really confusing for a lot of people, isn't it? Yeah, exactly right. And and I remember as a kid feeling confused when mum would be like, well, we can't have this and got to have a little bit less of this sometimes. And um, as we yeah. were trying to work out what it was that was triggering my eczema and um you know, it was probably not until I started studying nutrition that it became clearer. And I think that's part of where that interest has come from is it's like, if it's got to take studying a nutrition degree to, to, for it to become clear and understandable, then we need to do better um, working with the public to, to make it really nice and clear. Yeah, definitely. And I'd love to jump into a little bit of gut health with you because I know it is one of your specialty areas. So in terms of gut health, there are so many, I guess, like definitions online, but in its simplest form, what does good gut health mean to you? So to me, good gut health means um, having normal bowel motions, sometimes feeling a little bit bloated because that's normal, but not to the point that it's really bothering you. Um, I guess feeling well day to day Mm -hmm. and not being bothered by what's going on in your digestive system. Definitely. Love it. And if there are listeners at home who are experiencing bloating outside of what we would define as normal, you know, if you're going to eat a really large meal, if you're going to go out and you're going to have seconds or thirds of something, you're going to always experience a little bit of bloating or some people, even after they eat, you know, you eat a meal, you're obviously going to feel a little bit, a little bit bloated, but having that constant bloat all day long or where it's super painful or where you have to, you know, undo your pants because you're in so much pain, that's not what we call normal. And we've done a few podcasts where I've had other experts on um, talking about the definition of, you know, IBS and that sort of thing. But from your perspective, I'd love to know what some really simple tips our listeners could do at home if they are experiencing a little bit of bloating or they're getting a little bit of um, altered bowel patterns or something like that, maybe a bit of constipation, a bit of diarrhea. Are there any really simple tips that you might give our listeners at home as a starting point? Of course. So some of my, my favorite things to recommend is, is one you actually touched on before is looking at the size of your meals. And if you're having really large portions a lot of the time, um, because of the feeling of bloating that can result in, if you can reduce those portions down, and ma- maybe it does mean eating a little bit more regularly across the day. But if that means that you're not feeling overfull as a result of how much you're eating, that can really help. Um, and a really big one for drinking enough water as well. So if you're not drinking enough water, um, it impacts so many different bodily symptoms, uh, systems. Sorry. Um, however, um, from a constipation perspective, if you're dehydrated, um, that's a, a really big thing that can help. So increasing water intake, checking in on fibre intake as well. And, and I guess uh, I don't really like the terminology, but it's the most simple way to explain it is cleaning up the diet. So increasing fibre intake, increasing your diversity of plants, which I know has been talked about quite a lot on the podcast as well. Um, those are some really great things that you can do just to um, bring your gut back into balance and, and just to help you to feel a lot better day to day before we start looking at could it be a food that's triggering these symptoms. 
Wonderful. And that leaves me perfectly into the next question that I wanted to ask you about. So if somebody is listening at home and they're thinking, you know, I've listened to all Leanne's podcasts, I've, I've increased the fiber, I've decreased the fiber, I've added plenty more plants in, I'm, I'm, you know, reduced my alcohol, my coffee intake, I've done all of the right things, essentially. What is my next step? You know, I'm still experiencing symptoms. There is this term that we've sort of loosely talked about on the podcast or just sort of brushed over, and that is FODMAPs. And I know that you have a special interest in this area as well. Um, so I'd love for you to explain to our listeners what the term FODMAP means and who it may be appropriate for a low FODMAP diet. Yeah, of course. So FODMAPs is an acronym. So it stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. Um, There's an acronym there for a reason. And (laughs) um, it is appropriate. um, The reason that it's looked at in terms of gut health is because these are different types of carbohydrates that can either ferment or malabsorb in the gut, and they can result in the symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome or IBS. Um, the research does show that there can be really great improvements for people when they utilise a low FODMAP diet. Um, but it's something I know we're going to talk about in a bit more detail later on is it's important that it's used correctly. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it's appropriate for people with irritable bowel, but it's not the first-line approach. Um, it's to, The way that I like to think about it is it's a second-line approach. So we do the other things we were talking about before, so adjusting fibre intake, water intake, the coffee and the alcohol, all of those things first. And then FODMAPs is the next thing if those things haven't been enough to help with management of those symptoms. Mm -hmm. And would you say included in the first line um, sort of things that we would try would be going to your GP and getting some screening specifically to rule out any what we would call like red flags, things like celiac disease, um, inflammatory bowel disease, those sorts of things? Yeah, 100%. And and I think that's um, probably the the most important thing to do. Like if we step outside of the food realm um, of what we're looking at food-wise, other things that we could um, that are must-dos are getting those things ruled out because if um, bowel cancer or inflammatory bowel disease are, are missed, then the impact on long-term health is going to be a lot greater. Um, so getting those things checked and ruled out first is very, very important before we start to, to play around with the diet. The other thing is looking at stress levels as well. There's such great evidence around stress management and the impact that that can have on your gut health and irritable bowel um, syndrome symptoms too. So um, I was reading some studies recently around um, the impact that yoga can have and even hypnotherapy can have on IBS too. So it's important to, to take that holistic approach and not just be looking at uh, it must be food related. Um, what else is going on in the day? Definitely 100% agree with that. And now in terms of FODMAPs, and this is something that I really want to focus on within this podcast, because we have done a a few um, podcasts with some other experts around how important stress management is. So if you are listening at home and you are thinking, oh, I do really have a stressful lifestyle, or I'm always busy, or I'm always sort of anxious, it could be a great idea to go back and listen to some of those other podcasts um, regarding, you know, food sources, increasing fiber, um, decreasing stress. But I really brought Chloe on the podcast today to have a chat about FODMAPs because it is one of her special areas. So FODMAPs, is a term that is very, very confusing, but it is really to do with the amount of um, fermentable carbohydrates in our diet, isn't it? And it's not what we would call an allergy. It's not even... It's more sort of an intolerance or a level or a threshold that people can tolerate. So it's not to say that you have to never eat these foods again, but there is sort of an exclusion um, process where you take them all out, then you reintroduce them and challenge them to sort of understand um, how your body reacts to them. So did you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about um, maybe just an example of somebody who might um, really benefit from a low FODMAP diet and then how they would go through that? Yeah, of course. So if you're somebody who has gone through the, the other things we were talking about before and it's 
you're still not getting any relief from your IBS symptoms, then that's when a low FODMAP diet is appropriate. And so the process there is to then reduce your intake of high FODMAP foods. So it's not removing all FODMAPs from your diet. It's really about reducing because exactly as you said, it is about having that threshold because it's not an allergy. Some will be able to be tolerated of each of the foods in each of the groups. It just depends on what your sensitivity levels are. Um, Once you have done that elimination, I'll usually suggest that that's done for somewhere in between two to four weeks. Um, Ideally two, if you've got symptom improvement and you've been able to to do it quite well for that two weeks. But I found as well, sometimes some people do need a little bit longer just because like life can get in the way. They're sort of like they start, um, but maybe they haven't actually truly started the low FODMAP diet for an extra week or so. So um, just looking at some of the different strategies in that sort of two to four week period to reduce FODMAP intake. I also really like to encourage people to rather than change their whole diet, if if they're already eating healthy choices, is looking at how they can modify their, their normal meals to make them low FODMAP. So an example could be, so they're making a like a spaghetti bolognese and they'll usually put onion and garlic in it. So using some, some onion or garlic infused olive oil instead of those. So you're still getting that flavour in there, um, but reducing the FODMAPs by removing the onion and the garlic. Or maybe you're making a stir fry and instead of putting uh, like mushrooms and um, snow peas and, and things in there, maybe you're swapping those out for some zucchini or some carrot instead because of the FODMAP intake of those. So it's just about swapping things in and out. I think a lot of the time. That said, it can be really confusing how to do that too because um, the different types of FODMAPs can build up with each other and then you can end up in something called FODMAP stacking where you might be having what you feel is a safe amount of, say, green beans, but then um, so 12 green beans is considered low FODMAP but 17 is considered higher FODMAP just to like make it super confusing. And so maybe you've had your 12, but then you've also added in something else, which is high in sorbitol into that meal as well. And so suddenly that sorbitol threshold may well be going over. And that's where I think it can be a bit confusing for people. So that's part of that elimination phase is learning all about those things. So it's not just remove them easy as pie. It can be quite time consuming learning how to do that. And that's um and that's why I say two to four, not just a set two or a set four. Definitely. And I was just going to say, so it is really important to be up to doing um, a low FODMAP diet under the consultation of a dietitian, isn't it? Not just sort of Googling it yeah. online and trying to do it yourself because it is a very, very complicated diet. And we do, you know, as dietitians, we don't love diets, but this is something that we would actively call a diet because it is a very strict elimination sort of process that you need to do quite strictly. There's no sort of, oh, I'll do it one day, then kind of fall off the wagon and start back the next day. Like you're just not going to get that symptom relief or um, see if the diet really does help you if you're sort of, I guess, cheating on it for lack of a better word. So it is something that does need to be done quite strictly under the guidance of a dietitian one-on-one, doesn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. And and, and I know when I first started working in this space and learning about FODMAPs and the impact that they can have, that was one of the things that I'd see quite a lot is people coming into my practice having be like, oh, I heard about FODMAPs and I've been sort of doing it and like using Dr. Google as as the help. Um, and, you know, that can help to a degree. And there's a lot of, uh, there is a lot of information out there, but as well, because it's still a relatively new thing that's being researched, there's a lot of conflicting um, information out there as well. So um, 
working with a dietitian who you know is up to date in the area as well I think is important because you know I'm going to just use an example of broccoli I feel like you know broccoli is one of the foods which um, has changed if you look at the the Monash food list app of the FODMAP content quite considerably over time Mm -hmm. and now in the app it breaks up if it's the florets or the stalk or the whole thing Um, but you know going back a few years it was considered a no and then after that it was considered a yes and then now it's sort of sitting in the middle so I think that's just one example of how things can change and you know to go into that in a little bit more detail um how it's been tested, um, seasonality, where the food that's being tested has come from or impact the FODMAP level of um, of what's in the food as well. So um, if it's been particularly rainy or particularly dry, that might impact how much FODMAPs there is in the food as well. So um, there's quite a lot of different things to be taking into account um, during that elimination phase. Once you finish that though, it's not just great, I've removed them, now I can just go back to my normal life and either not worry about it anymore or stay low FODMAP. We actually don't want you to do either of those things. We don't want you to just stay low FODMAP because firstly, it's very restrictive to stay low FODMAP. And secondly, um, high FODMAP foods are actually very good for the gut. So particularly things like the, the oligosaccharides and the fructin. So they provide a lot of the prebiotic fiber, which I think your listeners have probably heard a lot about already before. So if you're removing all of these foods from your diet, it's going to have a really big impact on your long-term gut health. So we want to work out which FODMAPs are triggers for you and then work out um, how like what your threshold is for those different foods so that we can get a really comprehensive idea of, of where you're at, what you can include so that you can re-liberalise your diet in the longer term. Definitely. I think you touched on such an important point and I was actually going to bring that up and say that it's kind of like low FODMAP diet is this sort of catch-22 where it can be so helpful for people to understand what is triggering their symptoms and people feel so good once they start it. They're like, oh my goodness, my symptoms feel so good. This is the best I've ever felt in years. And then they just, they never reintroduce because they're almost so scared and so fearful. But the catch-22 is that FODMAPs, a lot of them are natural prebiotics and that's what fuel the good bacteria in our gut. That's what helps our gut health long-term, isn't it? So staying in a low FODMAP diet long-term can be very, very dangerous for your gut health and can lead to worsening symptoms over time. And I think that's where a lot of people... Um, and the research is only just sort of catching up now that we know that long-term staying in a low FODMAP diet can be quite detrimental. And I guess when, you know, the whole FODMAP thing kind of came out, what, maybe five or six years ago now, there wasn't really that push for not staying on it. You know, a lot of people yeah. didn't know that. So I get a lot of emails and messages these days from people saying, you know, I've been on a low FODMAP diet for five years. It worked really well for me. Now my gut health is terrible. What do I do? I can't eat anything as it is, or I've already eliminated so many things. Where do I go from there? Yeah. And uh, I completely agree. It's, it's one of those things where I think because you feel so much better, um, if you are sensitive to the different FODMAPs, um, you know, I completely understand the the apprehension apprehension to not reintroduce them back into your diet because, you know, um, it, it makes sense to go, well, I feel good not eating these things. Why would I eat them? Mm-hmm. Um, however, exactly as we've, we've both said, um, reintroducing them is so important to help with improving your health in the longer term. And um, to, to take onion as an example, I think that's one that a lot of people are quite sensitive to. And, and mm-hmm. I think I've heard you talk about onion and, and yourself before as well. Um, I know that's one that 
people often just go, well, I can't have it, I'll avoid it entirely. However, it's in so many foods when you eat out. And it's also one of those things that is a prebiotic um, because of the type of fibre that it contains. So if we're able to add just small amounts of it back into the diet, um, whether it's somebody who's been avoiding it longer term or somebody who's just worked out that it's something that they're sensitive to, um, I, we'll talk about the challenges in a second, but when we're looking at the reintroduction, which is the last phase, that's a really important part to, to just take it step by step, um, really small amounts at a time so that you can work out where your threshold lies and not be avoiding eating these things in the longer term. And that's something which so many people unfortunately um, skip. And I think like I'm so glad that um, that you asked me to, to come on and talk about this because I think it's something that like I've seen a lot on social media, people can get really passionate about, oh, like they're just such a no. It's like, well, they're a no, but no in a larger amount. And it's about having those those smaller amounts as well. 100%. And I'm really happy you brought up onion because that was, for me and my own personal journey, probably one of the biggest fear around foods that I had was onion because I got such terrible symptoms from it. And I literally would have to call in sick for work or wouldn't go out to any social occasions or I'd go out to dinner and I'd be like, I don't know, eating salad with like you know, something on the side or like a bowl of hot chips or something because I was so fearful of eating anything else. And it honestly probably took me, I did all of my reintroductions from the low FODMAP diet and onion was the one thing that probably took me, I would say over a year, if not two years to actually reintroduce. And I think even though I started and it was just the tiniest amounts, like I am generally a meal prepper for the week. So I'll make four to five meals of, of something, maybe a stir fry or something. And I would take not even a quarter of an onion, maybe like an eighth of an onion and spread that across four to five meals. And so I'd be having just the tiniest amount and I would still experience symptoms from that, but I just pushed through and pushed through. And I could say that it probably took me a good six months of just eating really tiny amounts. And now I'm up to the stage, probably a year or two later, where I can actually take a whole onion and put that across four meals and I'm absolutely okay. Yeah. So there is hope at the at the end of the tunnel for those at home. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you've, you've explained that as well. And I've seen that in my practice again and again and again where people have done like exactly that where it's just been small amounts on a really regular basis um, Mm -hmm. until they are able to tolerate more and the how that's happening is because it's helping your gut to to get better at digesting and um, working through um, being able to tolerate those those different types of fiber. So um, there is hope for you and it's not just onion that this can happen with. It, it happens with all of the FODMAP foods as well. So um, try, trialing small amounts of the different ones that you're sensitive to is really, really imperative. Mm-hmm. And even as you mentioned, different thresholds. So if you're going to have even a small amount for three days in a row, you might feel pretty terrible on the second or third day. But if you were to do it, you know, try a really small amount every third day, that might be, you know, a, a really nice strategy to just be able to tolerate that a little bit easier, particularly if you've got to go to work every day and that sort of thing. But if you're yeah. somebody who might work from home or you're a mum from home, you don't have to maybe go out too much and you can just put up with those symptoms for a little while. It is well worth pushing through because as you said, a lot of our FODMAPs are natural prebiotics and they actually help to strengthen our gut health long term and I personally have absolutely found that whereas including really small amounts of FODMAPs now I'm up to quite regular amounts of you know normal sizes of prebiotics and that sort of things um, I've actually found that my gut health is the best that it's ever been whereas if you talk to me 
maybe three, four, five years ago, I would say, I can't eat that. I can't eat that. I can't eat that. I'll come out, but I probably won't eat because I'm just too scared that something will give me terrible symptoms. And those symptoms would last for, you know, days on end. And I still have days where I do get bloated. I do get a bit gassing my, you know, my bowels are a bit altered on some days, but it's not something that is continuous for me. It's day in and day out like it used to be. Because I think that even people um, with IBS, they do sort of struggle with that. Even if they have a bad day of symptoms, they think, oh, oh, it's all come back. It's all, you know, it's all happening again. Whereas sometimes that stress and anxiety from just having a small amount of symptoms can make everything worse. As you said, like stress and anxiety plays such a huge impact as well. So it is such a confusing area and a thing to do, isn't it? The low FODMAP yeah. diet. It is. It can actually make anxiety worse in, in a lot of people, can't it? It, it? I think definitely. And I, I think you've touched on it really well there is there's that anxiety about reintroducing the foods as well. So it's sort of, I think sometimes it's a bit of a chicken or the egg. So is it the anxiety that's causing the symptoms um, or is it the food that's causing the symptoms? And then, you know, it can go up and down as well. And, you know, then conjunction together, that's also not ideal either because, you know, if you're sensitive to onion and then also feeling anxious and both of those things are going to contribute to your symptoms. To, to go back to your example of you know, having that really small amount of onion in those meals initially, part of that was probably some of that anxiety that you were feeling around, oh, I've got onion in this meal. What, like, what's this going to do to me today? And over time, as you felt more comfortable with having the onion there, plus your gut has changed to be able to tolerate the onion better. That's why you're you're now able to have that really normal amount of it, which is really fantastic. Mm, and I think, to be honest, it's something that probably helped me a lot during that reintroduction phase was I used to tell myself, okay, I'm going to get symptoms from this. Like I would almost expect that not be like, oh, my gut's so good now. I have no symptoms. I'm just, you know, I'm so scared of reintroducing it. I sort of flipped that on its head and went, you know, I'm going to get symptoms. This is going to happen. And then maybe when the symptoms weren't as bad, like I almost expected the worst and I think for me that helped deal with the sort of stress and the anxiety around reintroducing foods like it kind of yeah I don't know it, it really helped me that way in terms of just expecting the worst and then if the symptoms weren't as bad I was kind of like oh that's maybe that's not as bad that is kind of bearable <laughs> yeah and I mean knowledge is power right so if you know that you're probably not going to feel so great from eating something but you're then making a decision to eat it anyway well I think psychologically that's going to help you to be able to then feel better about doing it because you've made that conscious decision where whereas if you don't know what's in the meal that you've just eaten that's causing those symptoms um that can be anxiety inducing as well because then you're like well I don't know why I'm feeling this way and maybe it is that stir fry this really healthy meal you know you're doing all the right things why am I feeling this way and you know when when clients say that to me that is that's honestly when I'm like maybe we do need to be looking into a low FODMAP diet because you know a lot of the foods that are high FODMAP are very healthy foods that people focus on eating because they know that they are healthier foods for them. Yeah, 100%. And I think that was probably me when I first started along, I guess, my gut health journey. For the listeners at home who may have not heard my previous podcast, I got a really bad case of essentially just barley belly when I was about 20 or 21. And my gut was never the same after that. I was so sensitive to so many things. I couldn't tolerate anything. I would be running to the bathroom after eating a meal, that sort of thing. So that sort of was what started. Even though I'd always been a bit of a sensitive kid, I didn't really have any sort of, I guess, diagnosed intolerances or anything. But after that really bad case of barley belly and um, after that, my gut was just sort of terrible for a number of years. And I think that I sort of just let that define me rather than trying to, I guess, find a way out of it or try to actually improve my gut health. And then I tried all the things that people recommended. I did dairy-free, I did gluten-free, you know, nothing. It's sort of 
helped initially, but then not really in the long term. And then I cut all the processed foods out. I started eating a lot better throughout my university studies. And again, my symptoms actually got worse. So it was kind of like, I'm doing everything right. And I think for a lot of listeners at home who might be feeling that way, that is where potentially trialing a low FODMAP diet with a dietitian could be, um, could be a really great next step, isn't it? Yeah, I completely agree. And um, as we said at the start, it's, it's, not the first line approach. It is important to look at other things, but you know, if you have done a really great job of clearing up your diet and you're, you're ticking all of the other boxes, well, then that's when it certainly might be worthwhile looking into. Definitely. Sorry to interrupt this podcast, but I wanted to take less than a minute to kindly thank our generous sponsors, Future Farm Co. They aim to deliver plant-based foods to Australia and New Zealand, bringing the world's best plant-based brands to your local store, ensuring that you have greater variety and convenience and that your options for plant-based foods are always delicious. Their objective is to speak the facts, educate on sustainability and health, while also providing a simple and convenient solution to feed the world's population and improve the environment. You can find their many plant-based options to replace meat, chicken, seafood, dairy, and also desserts and sauces on their website, which is www.futurefarmco.com, or you can find them on Instagram at futurefarmanz or on Facebook at futurefarmco. Now let's get straight back to our podcast. And any other tips for listeners at home who may be about to start it or who may be going through it or who maybe did a low FODMAP diet years ago and they're still sort of following it? It is, you know, the time we've talked about how important it is to reintroduce it. Any other tips for our listeners at home in terms of the reintroduction phase? It is a scary phase, which can cause people a lot of anxiety. Um, Any tips that you recommend um, the different groups to start with or, you know, should they do it when they're on holiday so they've got a couple of, you know, a couple of weeks at home or something like that? Yeah, so there's a a few different things there. So firstly, I'd suggest making sure that you, you move through the challenges quite clearly so that you know which groups you're sensitive to because most people aren't sensitive to all of the different types of FODMAPs. So Mm -hmm. working out which ones you're sensitive to first because that way the things that you're not sensitive to, you can confidently reintroduce all of those things back into your diet straight away. So that means that you're going to be um, having a much bigger variety of food back into your diet more quickly. So that's going to have less of a longer-term impact on your gut health. Um, secondly, I think taking it really slowly and um, I think, you know, waiting until you're on holidays um, may work but it might need to be a staycation because mm-hmm. may not want to be travelling around and, and um, testing things out um, the first time. But um, I, I do think that when you are away on holidays, it is a good time to relax things a little bit further than you might usually because, you know, you're on holidays, you don't have to get up. Often stress levels are significantly reduced. So a lot of the time people will be able to tolerate a lot more of foods um, when they are in that more relaxed state than they would during their day-to-day life. And I actually will often suggest maybe doing um, like doing some reintroductions over a weekend. So trying, say, a small amount on a Friday and then a little bit more on a Saturday and then a bit more on the Sunday, just that way um, – it's not going to be impacting your work life too much, but also um, you're you're still still sort of getting it done in a shorter period of time. I generally suggest, from an order perspective of reintroducing things, um, I, I actually like to leave that up to the client a little bit. So mm-hmm. um, I do encourage them to be reintroducing things like the the legumes, the garlic, and the onion. Um, 
first if they're comfortable to do that because of the prebiotic fibres that are predominantly found in those um, particular groups. However, if they're like just really missing having, say it's mango season like it is at the moment and they're like, I just want to be getting a bit of mango back in my life, well, let's start with that. And, you know, maybe it's that you can tolerate having a cheek of a mango and you're totally fine and you're really happy with that. That's great. Do that. And then we can move on to the next type of thing. And um, mangoes are, are high in fructose. So that's looking at that and then any other foods that are high in fructose as well. Um, it's not just the mango that's the problem. It's the fructose that's in there, which is, I think, some, somewhere where sometimes people can get a little bit confused. Um, but, yeah, taking it slowly, picking foods that would normally be in your usual diet um, reintroducing them so that you can get back to feel that, that feeling of normalcy and including foods that you really enjoy more quickly along with including the foods which are really going to be particularly beneficial for your longer term gut health as well. Definitely. And I think just to set some, I guess, realistic expectations for our listeners at home who may be, um, you know, maybe about to try the low FODMAP diet or who may be doing some of the reintroduction phases, it can take quite a while, can't it? Because I know that a lot of clients will be like, oh, I'll do this for a couple of weeks and I'll be fine. But I remember even with my own personal journey years ago, it took me close to a year to fully be able to reintroduce everything because once you sort of experience a symptom to that, then I'd back it off and I'd go back to the low FODMAP diet until I was symptom free. Then I'd try it in a half amount and that sort of thing. So it's fine if you're not going to experience any symptoms to a particular group, but if you are going to be symptomatic, it can be quite a lot of trial and error in terms of establishing what your new threshold to this food might be. That's exactly right. And, you know, it's not a a quick fix. There's, there's no blood test or anything that can test for it. Um, the breath tests have been shown to not be credible. So um, mm-hmm. I know I don't recommend those um, because they haven't shown to be clinically significant. So there isn't a test that you can do to tell you straight away what you're going to be sensitive to. So because of that, it is a, a quite lengthy process and it does take a bit of dedication. Um, I always like to tell people that, you know, we don't want to put your life on hold. It's about working around the different things that are happening in your life so that, you're still working it out, but you're still able to enjoy the different things. So, you know, maybe you've got a wedding that you're you're going to or you've got a weekend away with the girls or something like that um, and you don't want to have to be worrying about it, well, then planning around it. So maybe your mid-challenges, well, let's put the challenges on hold, be low FODMAP in the lead up to the weekend. Um, so for the, the 24 hours or so beforehand um, particularly so that you can help to let things settle down a little bit for yourself have a great weekend. Try not to go too overboard on the higher FODMAP things, but mm-hmm. but don't be too restrictive because of that stress component that we spoke about. And then the following week, go back to being my FODMAP, let things settle down and then restart doing the challenges again. And yes, it means that the process takes a bit longer. However, it also means that your life is still livable and you're not then feeling socially isolated because that's going to have such a huge impact on your gut symptoms and how you're feeling day to day as well. Definitely. Yeah. So it is really, um, I guess that longer term process, but it is definitely a hundred percent worth it in the end, isn't it? To be able to eat, I guess your, at least your threshold amounts of different ranges of FODMAPs and that sort of thing, because they are completely healthy foods as well, aren't they? Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, as, as we've spoken about, your threshold can change over time as well. Mm. So, you know, if you've done the low FODMAP diet and a long time ago and, you have maybe worked out your thresholds, but you think they might have changed. It might be worthwhile 
um, testing, having a little bit more of some of those foods to see if you can tolerate them. Or maybe if you've been low FODMAP for a long time, working through the challenges themselves, but just taking it slowly so that you can see where things are at for you now, because you, you don't need to be that restrictive long term. And you know, it can be so liberating being able to go, oh, like I, I don't have to worry about this when I'm eating out um, and it just can make your life so. Mm, I know for me, one of my favourite things to reintroduce and to actually be able to eat now is garlic mushrooms. Like mushrooms are one of my favourite foods. That was one of the first things I reintroduced because I'm like, I love <laughs> mushrooms, particularly with like eggs on top, like sourdough for breakfast. And then just putting like the tiniest amount of garlic with them, just like the simplest thing for me, but just so wonderful <laughs> to be able to actually eat and enjoy it. Yeah, I think it's the simple things. Um, I'd say that avocado and apples are probably the two things that people most commonly say. Like, I just, yeah. it's that, I think it's that crunch of that biting into a beautiful <laughs> fresh apple. And, yeah. um, you know, it's, you know, being able to introduce that again and, and enjoy it can be, you know, life changing, I think. Yeah, just the simple things in life, hey? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, Chloe, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about your online FODMAP program. I know I've seen it online and I know it's absolutely wonderful and it's a really, really great option for people who may live in sort of like a rural location or who might be super busy. They're not able to go and see, you know, a dietitian one-on-one because it, it is all online, isn't it? It is, yeah. So it's called the FODMAP Challenge and I started it for, for a couple of reasons. So um, firstly, because um, I grew up in the country and I, I know that, you know, you're not always necessarily going to be access, uh, be able to access someone with the expertise that you need face to face. So, um, having being able to provide that service, um, I think, is quite important to me. Um, but also because you know, there's so much out there online about FODMAPs that's incorrect or that's outdated, and so I wanted to be able to provide that service for people um, to know that there is that up to date, credible information there. And then as well. You know, it can be expensive to see a dietitian one-on-one and because it can be quite a lengthy process, this means less sessions with a dietitian. Um, I do still recommend people um, work with a dietitian if they, if they wish throughout the program and whether that's um, someone in my team or someone somewhere else, um, I'm, not, I'm not fussed by that, but I do, um, do recommend that. Um, but it just means that you've got that extra touch point. You can come back to the information. It's there in a variety of, of mediums for you. So depending on what your learning style is. So if you like videos or if you like written content um, or if you like audio, they're, they're all there as an option. So um, to help you through that learning process and to help to, to guide you through, um, just to make it that little bit easier because as we've said, it is a long process. It is a, a, just a process in itself. So um, being able to have that regular touch point is really helpful. Um, yeah, as you said, it's completely online. Um, it goes through the elimination phase, the challenge phase, and then um, starting like education on how to reintroduce the foods back into your diet as well. Wonderful. And I know this is a question I get asked and I'm sure you get asked all the time. Does the program include recipes? Because that's the one thing people just absolutely seem to need when they do something like a low FODMAP diet. Yes. So it includes recipes, it includes meal plans. And um, so we've got a, the type of meal plan with recipes that is like the something different for every single day of the week. And then there's also the type of meal plan if you're more of a meal prepper like yourself, where you might cook once or twice in the week um, and then utilize different Lower, lower FODMAP options throughout that week. And then there's also tips around how to modify your own recipes so that, you know, you're not suddenly trying to cook entirely differently. Um, 
And then as well, it's, it's about, you know, if you're cooking just for yourself or if you're cooking for your family as well. So how you might modify a meal so that it's low FODMAP for you, but then you're not having the rest of the family be low FODMAP all the time either. Because if they don't need to be low FODMAP, then they don't need to be low FODMAP. 100%. And I think that's a really, really important point because I think a lot of people think, you know, low FODMAP, um, you know, there's a lot of research and science behind it. Oh, I'll give it to my husband. Or I'll give it to my kids because it's just easier that way. But as we talked about, it can actually be more harmful or detrimental to your gut health long term. So absolutely do not put your family members or loved ones on a low FODMAP diet if they don't have, yeah. you know, diagnosed IBS or the need to be on a low FODMAP diet. Yeah, exactly. And so the the um, the tip that I like to give there is if it's a dinner where everyone's eating together and that meal is low FODMAP for everyone, that's cool as long as they're still getting the higher FODMAP foods in at their other meals in the day. So you know, everyone's eating, everyone else is eating high FODMAP at breakfast, they're eating something different to what they had for dinner at lunch, which is high FODMAP as well, and then you've, you've got that family meal in the evening that can make it a little bit easier just from a like managing things with the family side of things. Um, but, yeah, certainly wouldn't be recommending it for all of the meals throughout the week. Wonderful. And with your online program, Chloe, if someone is interested in listening now, is there a certain intake that you do every sort of like six weeks or eight weeks or is it open for them to sort of sign up and join whenever they may choose? It's open to sign up and join whenever you choose. And I, I used to do specific timing of intakes, but I got some feedback that that wasn't necessarily good timing for people. So I thought, well, let's just make it so it suits people. Um, and you can sign up whenever you like. Um, it's priced at $99, which is, um, I think, incredibly good value. Um, mm -hmm. It's less than the cost it is to see a dietitian once um, in most instances. So um it means that it's a really affordable way to take you through that program and um, learn all that you need to know about the low FODMAP diet. Wonderful. And do they receive support from a dietitian as part of that program as well? Or they can access a dietitian if needed? Yeah, they can. So um, they're, they're able to ask questions um, throughout the program to whether it's to myself or, or one of the other dietitians in my team. And they, we always aim to get back to people obviously as soon as we possibly can with those and then if they're needing um more of like a um more specialized help and um, to turn into an actual consult then we offer those as an online service too wonderful such a great comprehensive program you've thought of everything <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much um it's i feel very very lucky to be able to work in this space and um be able to help people improve their quality of life so significantly um just through making some dietary changes Definitely. And you mentioned the program, Chloe, was the FODMAP challenge. If they just sort of yep. put that into Google, will it pop up or is there a particular website that you recommend? Uh, that will pop up if they jump onto Google and type in the mm -hmm. FODMAP challenge or the website is simply FODMAPchallenge.com. So Wonderful. nice and simple. Great. And is there a social media page that people can follow along if they're interested and yours as well? Yeah. So um, on Instagram, it's the FODMAP challenge. Same for Facebook. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, we use a lot of um, hopefully helpful infographics for people to, to learn about um, different FODMAP contents of foods there. Um, and my own social media is Chloe underscore McLeod underscore dietitian. And yeah, I talk about a mix of things more sport related and life related and, and things there as well as FODMAPs too. Wonderful. So head on over to Instagram and give FODMAP Challenge a follow and Chloe's account as well, guys. And I'm super excited to be able to bring you back for a second podcast that we're going to do. And we're going to be talking about something that's very specific. And I know it's one of your sort of niche areas around um, runner's gut and GI issues with sort of athletes and, and weekend warriors, which will be really, really exciting. So stay tuned for that one as well, guys. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Chloe. Thanks so much for having me, Leanne. It's been really lovely chatting to you. 
right? And we'll catch you guys in the next podcast.